Hello, and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. So when you talk to people about basic income, often they come from a place of having a grand, bold vision for society. And the automation discussion has has been one element of that where people say, you know, well, if robots are taking our jobs, let them take our jobs and, and just give people money. And that produces one set of policy ideas that go with basic income. But there is another equally bold, equally important vision that includes basic income, which is much older than the automation discussion. And that is around racial justice and racial equity. And that, of course, has its own set of complementary policy positions. And that movement is still very much alive today. So I had a chance to sit down with Jeremy Greer, who's a co-founder of Liberation in a Generation. This is a relatively new organization that's working to actually create what they are calling a liberation economy for people of color across the United States. So here's Jim's conversation with Jeremy Greer. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So to start off with, can you just tell us what was the original motivation for starting Liberation in a Generation? Yeah, so. it really goes back to the beginning of uh, my career and Solana Rice, my uh, co-founders' careers. And we've really always worked at this nexus between race um, and the economy. And for me, it started when I was a community organizer in Columbia Heights in Washington, D.C. And I was working in Washington, D.C. Um, I was really young, uh, just trying to like do right you know, in the community. And it was at that time where the community changed kind of right before us, like the waves of gentrification came through. And I remember uh, going up and down 14th Street uh, in Columbia Heights and seeing all these big dumpsters out in front of houses. Like, what is this? And and seeing that like all of a sudden a neighborhood that was barely policed when I first started working there, police everywhere, like always patrolling, always coming around. Um, and it was then that it was like, there's something happening here that I don't and a lot of my career has been around trying to figure out what that is. And so I went there, I was, I was working in national organizations for a while. The last one I worked out was uh, Prosperity Now, where we focused on the racial wealth divide. And we built out a program there and issued a report that said that, well, but if we do nothing by the middle of the century, Black and Latinx wealth will be zero. And that was like eye-opening for, for us. And it was at that point where it's like, there's something... This stuff that we're doing, looking at trying to fix people and trying to train people into getting better jobs, train people into finding wealth, just wasn't going to work and that we need a real systemic change. So Salon and I came together and we started Liberation and Generation, which is really um, trying to do three things. Create a big, bold policy agenda that is up for the challenge of creating liberation for people of color um and within a generation a new narrative that sets the stage for that a new economic narrative and then really working with power building organizations that are going to build the type of power that we need to move those types of big bold policies so i mean when you're talking about that sort of structural change that's really incredibly hard that there's a reason that people tend to focus on like the small step because it's a whole lot easier to get something done over a reasonable period of time So can you talk a bit more about what your approach is here? How do you see actually ultimately being able to accomplish this? Right. So I I worked, so a lot of the time, I worked in Washington, D.C., doing lobbying and things like that. And what became clear to me is that you can't, for the things that we care about, for moving structural change that is going to 
really changed the way um, people, people of color who have been oppressed in our economy for centuries is you're not going to do that inside the Beltway because the rules are created for people that can operate in that. It's really about money. How much money can you, can you accumulate and how can you use that money to influence Washington? The only way that we can have that type of structural change is by building the power where we have power, which is in our communities and where they have to come back and ask for our votes. So that was a real shift in strategy for, for us and something that we're trying to institute with uh, Liberation Generation is taking these big national policies, these big transformational policies, some of which we hopefully will be able to talk about, and then getting people on the ground excited and geared up to move those policies across the finish line, that they can actually have impact on what happens in Washington, which I think for a long time, and I think even today, people really don't feel like they can. So a distinction that you make in your work is talking about the oppression economy that exists today and the liberation economy that we are ideally building towards. towards, Can you say more about what those mean? Yeah, so I'll start with the oppression economy because I think it's the one that we're most familiar with. So the oppression economy comes around one kind of really uncomfortable truth and really that shifts the way that we think about the way the economy is oriented. And that is that racism, oppression, and discrimination is profitable. That money can be made by those phenomenons and is made by those phenomena. It's been made throughout our history. You think about the way the entire economy was built around the slave trade. Um, you think about redlining in cities where you could drive down the, the um, value of homes and put and segregate black people into those communities. You think about the way um, we use our immigration system to drive wages down for immigrant workers. So there's a real profit motive for racism. If you understand that that's the way the economy works, you then begin to understand that is behaving the way it's designed to behave, which then takes us to, we need to dismantle that system and build a new one. And that brings us to the liberation economy that we hope to build. And that that liberation economy is really value-based and really lands on four basic values. One, that all people of color have their basic needs met, that they can meet their own basic needs. Uh, Two, that they have safety and security in their community, in their home, with their financial situation. Uh, Three, that they are valued, they feel valued, and are compensated for that value within the economy. And then the last um, piece is that all people of color belong. And it's, it sounds kind of like hokey to say all people of color belong, but I think it's an important thing because it checks, are we really meeting every person's need? Are we not throwing anyone away? So people who are formerly incarcerated and currently incarcerated should not be cast aside. Undocumented immigrants should not be cast aside. People of color with disabilities should not be cast aside. LBGTQ plus people should not be cast aside. So when you make those affirmative values, it really checks. And, and once you get into the policy making, make sure that you're, you're making that policy available to everybody. It sounds like you're describing basically Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, that's and, what it is. Yeah. yeah, bringing people up to the top of that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and I'm, I'm sure one thing, because you talk about this being a solution for people of color, but that's not being done at the exclusion no. of other folks. 
No, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, if anyone is a exclusion of, it's the people who are hoarding all the wealth and resources. Right. I mean, this is where when I talk about that new narrative, that new story that we tell about the economy, we've been tricked into believing that we have an economy that is scarce, that there are only so many resources to go around. And the reason that it feels that way is because the resources are being hoarded by a small number of very wealthy white men. And if you understand the full abundance of the economy, then you can understand how those resources could be distributed in a way that people of color are gaining and other, for the vast majority of people in the country are not gonna lose anything. Um, you know, policy link, uh, Angela Glover Blackwell talks about like, you know, that actually a lot of people would do better. Equity is a superior growth model. It's gonna, it's gonna make everybody do well. So, and we, and we really do do believe that. If it's, so, if anyone's gonna lose anything, it's gonna be the people that have been hoarding the wealth for the last, you know, two to three hundred years in this country. So, can you talk a bit about what are some of the policy ideas that you have as part of the liberation economy? So, it is a vast. Let's talk about this. Platform is going to be comprehensive because no single bullet is gonna gonna solve it. But, um, for example, in the in the bucket of basic needs, uh, something that's talked about a lot on, on this podcast, so sure, uh, guaranteed income is something that we've uh, talked about. Guaranteed income that is regular, it's consistent, and it's adequate for people to just basically meet the needs that they have um, in their community. So people can pay their bills. Uh, they can get the things they need for their children um, and all that. Another policy that comes up a lot in kind of in the values and making sure people are valued space, we talk about like what would a world look like if there was zero unemployment, where everyone was guaranteed a job that paid adequately, but also paid at a level where they could begin to live a lifestyle that is, I think that we all would want. And not a like extravagant lifestyle, but you know, a lifestyle where you could take your kids to the movies now and then. Maybe go on a vacation. Like everyone should have access to the ability to, to do these things. Um, and then there's a lot of policies around affordable housing, um, universal health care, debt-free college. Um, there's a, there's a whole set of these universal policies that, if targeted right, will really have an impact um, on people of color. Um, and that's and th what we really want to do is not just work with the kind of policy wants to come up with these. But then through our work with advocacy organizations on the ground, help build these policies and design these policies in a way that they feel agency and ownership over them because they felt like they've informed them to a level that they think is going to have an impact in their community. And that because ultimately they're the ones that are going to take these policies across the finish line. So there have to be things that they feel like they can, they can own. So when thinking about different policy ideas, one perspective you can bring to them is whether they're more of a reactive policy, yeah. aiming to correct or alleviate some specific problem that's being faced, or whether they're more proactive, providing some sort of support that prevents issues from arising in the first place. Yeah. So when looking at the platforms you have for ending the oppression economy and building a liberation economy, how do you see the different policies there fitting in on that, yeah. either that spectrum or, or that categorization? Yeah, I mean, it's why we've categorized them in that way. So if you think about like the dismantling the oppression economy, it's really about looking at the systems of, of oppression. And again, in a really 
honest and truthful way. Like if you if you can acknowledge that our criminal justice system is designed to lock up and put black and brown people in jail so that people can make money and profit off of them, you can begin to look at the system in a way where you can actually bring it down and dismantle it. So we categorize these things to say, okay, we need to dismantle these systems, which is actually um, conceptually the easy part because we can identify where the problems are. It, politically, it's not the easy part because <laughs> there's a lot of people that make money off of these systems. But conceptually, you can say, like, and, and people have. So there's a whole set of policies. The difficult part is in the next stage. How do you envision or imagine an economy that is very different and operates very differently than the one that we currently have? One that acknowledges that we have abundance in our economy, that it can be shared, and that there's an important and critical role for government in maintaining people's civil rights, maintaining people's financial rights and economic rights, and then just being an agency for the people and not for major corporations and, and wealthy individuals. That's the harder part because it's really actually conceptualizing something that doesn't exist and then building systems anew, which we have not done for people of color in this country. When systems are built for people of color, it's usually to oppress them, not the other way around. So can you talk a bit about what is coming up for Liberation and Generation? Are there ways, if people are interested, that they can be involved in this? Yeah, so the big, this year is a big, gonna be a big year for us. 2020 is gonna be a big year. And a lot of it is gonna be getting out in the country, meeting with people, talking to people, and really working with people to help build out what these policies look like. So we're gonna be doing a set of workshops um, across the country with community organizing groups to do two things. One, have them, really we wanna provide some, our expertise as policy professionals, Solana and my expertise as policy profession, professionals, to help them build that muscle of building and, and creating policy. Um, and But what we also wanna do is through the process of, of building that policy with them, we wanna learn from them about what's important in their communities, what matters, and hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have a, that policy platform that we've started to talk about really fleshed out and really kind of ready to be delivered to policymakers to say, okay, here, you wanna close the racial wealth gap for a second, do this, do these things. Um, so that's kind of one thing that we're going to be doing a lot of. And anyone that's out there, community organizing groups that, that want to get out there, there's a way to get in touch with www.liberationinageneration.org where you can sign up for a newsletter. You can send us an email through the info and we can get real depth. We get back to everybody because we're at the point where we want to connect with anyone that wants to connect with us. Another thing that we're doing is um, we're going to be doing some... Um, you know, we're going to be making a round speaking about this work, really kind of talking about educating people around how the economy should work, how it does work. And if there are people out there that want us to come talk to their group, whether it's at a conference, whether it's a small gathering, whether it's a town hall in their community, we're happy to um, come out and do that as well. So those are ways to connect with us. They can also sign up to our newsletter, um, kind of hear what's going on on the website. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be a big year for us, and we're, we're really excited. All right. Well, Jeremy, those were all the questions I had. Is there anything else you'd like to add? The only thing I add is that it's really critically important that we 
Um, the name is intentional and it's important that we have a goal that we can do this in a generation. We can create a new economy for the children that are born today, much different than the one that we lived in, but it's gonna take us all kind of coming together and really pushing the powers that, that, that benefit from the status quo um, out of the way and, and kind of take our government back for ourselves. That was Jim Pugh and Jeremy Greer on the Basic Income Podcast. What I found inspiring about that was that what liberation in a generation seems to be doing is combining both this bold vision of what do we want society to to look like? You know, what what are if you're starting from scratch almost, where where would we end up? But also where are we now and what are the policy fixes that can both fix our problems and move us toward this bigger vision? Yeah, I think I see a pretty big gap generally in the advocacy world where you have some people who are, are I mean, pushing utopian visions, which is, I think, important and good, but oftentimes that's done in a way where it's like, this is what we want. We don't really have any idea of how we're going to get here, but we want to tell you what we want, and then maybe we'll like do our own little thing on the side. Um, and like from a storytelling perspective, that's great. Get people thinking bigger. But it's, it's, you're really missing a key point there if, if you're not actually being able to explain what is a path to reach that society. And so I think that, uh, yeah, bringing those things together, saying like, look, we got to stop doing this, we got to start doing this, and here's how we're going to do it. That is, I think that has the potential to be so much more powerful as far as actually, I mean, bringing people along with you is like, okay, we see where we're going here. And the line that he had that, that brought those two things together into one sentence for me was equity is the superior growth model. That to me taps into a lot of the goals of more pragmatic people of, you know, what, what's your, you know, what's your five-step plan for the economy or whatever it is. And you know, this broader vision of equity, you know, how do we achieve equity? And to say equity is the superior growth model ties those together in a way that I think taps into the goals of people who are more pragmatically focused and people who are inspired by this bigger vision. Something I really like about the way that liberation and generation has approached this is the dichotomy they have between the oppression economy and the liberation economy. Because I think that there is, it's, it's, it's sometimes hard just to like make sense of it all. And I think saying this, yeah, basically saying like, this is what we got right now. Here are all the ways of which the, the rules in place are really beating people down. And that's not what we want. And on this other hand, here is what we do want. It's, it's, it becomes more powerful than just talking about individual policies one by one. Uh, it, it really allows you to, yeah, I mean, just to see that shift in your mind. Um, and then to, to have that frame, which then I think can allow you to, to better interpret what, how things are working and how things might potentially work if, if we can be successful in, in what we're pushing for. Yeah, and I think that framing of the oppression economy of what we have now is really key because I think it's common enough to look at America, at our economy right now and say, okay, things are, you know, they could be better, or they're pretty good, and yeah, we should make things less racist. We should try to find policies that that work for everyone, that, that lift everyone up. That all sounds great. 
And to identify this as the oppression economy is to say that this economy is built on oppression. Oppression is not just something else that is happening in addition to the market we have and the policies we have. It is woven in. And the, the vision that we want to move toward is the liberation economy that has a different DNA from which this whole thing grows out of. And you can get there from here, but you need to have that vision for the policies to actually match the values that you're trying to meet. Otherwise, it's just a Band-Aid. Something else this has made me think about, and we touched on it in the discussion, is the difference between policies that are really reactive in nature versus proactive. And I, I think this is an, another dichotomy that, that it actually is, is helpful to, to think about more because so much of the way that we do policymaking today is reactive, that it's saying, here's we see something wrong, so let's do something to address it. And in most cases, that's really just addressing symptoms. That we're saying, oh, like this is some externality, some, some bad result of the way our society operates. So let's do something to make it less bad. And in contrast, if we were to focus on proactive policymaking, it would be instead thinking about what policies actually do create the sort of society we want, and that inherently is focusing on causes, not the symptoms. And so I think that that is, I would say just me personally, that that has proven a helpful frame to consider when people talk about different ideas. Okay, what is this actually doing? Is this something that's going to actually get to the root of a problem, or is it something that's just putting a Band-Aid on things? And that if that's, if that's analysis that we can bring to bear more broadly, then potentially it will enable us to more effectively be able to, to push for things that are real solutions. That'll do it for this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Please rate us and review us on the podcast service of your choice. And we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.